And so our Bible reading uh, this morning, we're carrying on in our series in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 through to verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 to 16. Paul writes this, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this... We are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we can come no other way, but as we are. And so we come before you now and we ask, uh, Lord, that you would be at work in us by your word this morning. We pray that you would deepen our love for one another. 
that you would renew our repentance towards you and so fill our hearts with deepening joy. We ask it in the name of your beloved Son, our precious Saviour, Jesus. Amen. I'll do please be seated. And uh, if you'd like to have uh, the Bible passage open that John read uh, for us, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, that would be marvellous. I was a teenager in 1985, and for that reason I remember, uh, indeed I could sing to you, though you'll be grateful that I won't, uh, the lyrics of a forgettable pop song uh, by someone called Pat Benatar. Uh, The song was called Temporary Heroes. Uh, I doubt whether you will remember it, even if you were a teenager in 1985, uh, because it never made the charts in any of the nations that have pop charts. But one line in it serves as a useful introduction for today's sermon. Love and pain are only for the foolish. As we return to the second biblical letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, uh, the theme is something along those lines. What is the Christian life but to believe in one that the world regards as foolish and to find the experience of trust in Christ is to live with love and pain. Not as the throwaway lyrics of an ephemeral pop song, but as the deeply embedded realities of authentic Christian living. Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this chapter has something of that same fool uh, feeling of both foolishness to the watching world and power for those who believe. For the love and pain that these verses describe are cross-shaped. Uh, love and pain for the foolish indeed. And yet what Paul describes here uh, in the uh, imperfect reality of the Christian church, living in the light of Jesus on his cross will be our experience as well. And it'll be ours of every generation of Christians until we come home to when the pain is gone and love has triumphed. For in these verses, Paul demonstrates deep and costly love for the Corinthian Christians, a group of people to whom he is not related, from whom he expects no earthly reward, and by whom he has been deeply hurt Why would you love a group of people like that? It's extremely foolish. Again in this chapter, Paul defends the pain he has caused this same group of people. Not out of vengeance, because they have hurt him, but rather, he says, for their ultimate, indeed their invisible and eternal benefit. So pain given and received for a benefit that is as yet entirely cloaked by the future. Well, that sounds pretty foolish as well. Love and pain only for the foolish, perhaps. But as Paul will explain to us here, though on the surface that may appear to be foolish, when looked at through the lens of the cross, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in every gathering of Christians until the end of time, a deep and deepening love and a beneficial, indeed a healing pain are held up for us here as the genuine outworking of living in the light of the cross and the one who died for us there 
And why did he die there? What shall we remember in a few minutes when we take the bread and wine? Well, we'll remember one who died there because of his love for us and endured pain for us. It was all for us and for our salvation, not foolishness, but the power of God. And as we live together, as we follow Christ today, uh, we will find that same godly wisdom that still looks foolish to the world, but is still the pathway to glory. So we're going to trace through those two themes uh, in 2 Corinthians 7 uh, this morning. We won't look at every verse uh, today, but we will try and see how they apply uh, to us as we go along. Under the two headings, love and pain, uh, I'm going to suggest one verse uh, that I think encapsulates each of those and encourage us to meditate on those and perhaps even to commit them uh, to memory and to pray them through this week. First then, a deep love. Uh, From Paul's caricature uh, in the world today, I think many would consider him as a hard man, Uh, not one in touch, we might say, uh, with his feminine side, not rating highly uh, on the score of emotional intelligence, an orator rather than a pastor. Well, you couldn't conclude that, could you, if you'd read these words from this chapter. Here is a a man uh, who passionately loves the people with whom he is sharing Jesus Christ at enormous cost to himself and often with very little reward from them. Look at his appeal at the beginning, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. He's the one who has given him uh, this extraordinary gospel theology. And yet he would say, and he shows here, uh, that to believe in the gospel, to wonder at the doctrines of God's grace in Jesus Christ means nothing apart from living out that faith in the costly reality of loving our fellow Christians. As he would put it in his Galatian epistle, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now look at verse, uh, in the middle of verse 3, Paul appeals for the Corinthians uh, to love him on the basis of his prior commitment to them, which they already know. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. This statement of heartfelt love and appeal for it to be reciprocated uh, comes in a specific and difficult context for Paul and his Corinthian church. The letter has been uh, written after a painful episode in which Paul has uh, visited Corinth and confronted someone uh, he describes in this chapter in verse 12 as the one who did the wrong. Uh, And exactly what this man's sin was, we don't know. Uh, But we do know from later in the epistle Uh, chapter 12, verse 21, that there had been uh, a significant falling away by the Corinthians uh, into, and I quote, impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery. Nothing new about any of those sins, though they may seem to characterize our age as well and remain living and destructive temptations for Christians today. And perhaps most likely, as we put the different bits of evidence together, this man was a leader uh, teaching and perhaps uh, practicing his view that Christian faith was compatible with worldly indulgence and specifically with sexual immorality. That is, consistent with any sexual practice outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. And people, because our sinful hearts uh, want to be told that we can be loved and not have to change, had begun to be led astray by this man, his teaching, and his example. 
And at the time of Paul's visit, uh, there was no reconciliation with him because there'd been no repentance. This man was defiant uh, and an open breach was developing between Paul and the Corinthians. And after his visit, uh, he wrote a letter which we don't have and he'd uh, sent it with his uh, young assistant Titus. That's the letter he refers to here in verse 8 as the one that caused you sorrow. Sometimes we call this the severe letter. Well, after sending that letter, Paul had to wait. There was no social media. There was no email. Uh, Until Titus returned with the news, he would be on tenterhooks. So we can imagine uh, why he was anxious. The memory of the painful visit, the knowledge that he had written a subsequent letter that would upset them because of its blunt but necessary speaking, What would they do? Would they turn away from him and therefore implicitly from the gospel for good? Or would they be reconciled to him and to God as he longed for them? And so as he waits in Macedonia, perhaps at Philippi, verse 5, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within We don't know exactly what those conflicts on the outside were. Uh, Probably something to do with the persecutions being faced by him standing with the Macedonian churches that were under attack from the unbelieving world around them. But his fears within had to do with these Corinthians, his anxious waiting for news from Corinth. Again, later in the letter, he opens his heart again and uh, reveals his pastor's heart as he writes of the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So I give you some of this detail. It's here in these verses. So uh, not because our situation will be the same as Paul's. It won't. But because I want you to feel uh, the dilemma and the pain that Paul is in as he sits there in his anxious wait with so much discouragement in every turn. And now we're going to home in on verse 6. This is one of the two verses uh, that I would love you to learn and pray through and live out uh, in this next week. Verse 6. God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Friends, are you downcast this morning? If you're not, I don't want to dampen your spirits, and I'm glad you're happy. Uh, Maybe uh, you need to store this away, because the time will come, won't it? It does for all of us. We all know what it is, sometimes excruciatingly, to be as Paul was, without rest, harassed, conflicted, fearful. Those words may have arisen from his unique situation, but we can translate them easily into ours, can't we? Once we've lived long enough. Once we know what it is uh, to love and endure pain uh, in so doing, uh, once we wrestle with our responsibilities as our bodies ail and those responsibilities increase with the years, we know what it is to be exhausted, harassed, conflicted, fearful. But in Jesus, we know the same God that Paul does. Our circumstances may have nothing uh, overlapping them, but we have the same access to the God who comforts the downcast. Isn't that a wonderful title uh, for God? Uh, Will you claim that for yourself today? God who comforts the downcast. Uh, But look at how God comforts Paul 
And this really uh, is where the application comes. Uh, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. The apocryphal story is told of the uh, zealously believing man who was caught up uh, in a flash flood that had overwhelmed his home. Uh, The waters had risen uh, to the roof line. He was clinging to the chimney pot and he was praying ceaselessly for the Lord to come and deliver him. A rescue boat appeared uh, and called out to him and threw him a line. Uh, No, said the man, I'm waiting for God to save me. A rescue helicopter came and hovered. The ladder was dropped down to him. Uh, Again, the man refused. I'm trusting that God himself will come and save me. The helicopter flew away. The waters rose still further and the man was swept to his death. It's a ridiculous story, of course. Who sent the boat and who sent the helicopter? I could tell from your reaction you got the point of the story straight away. If not God. You see, this poor man was so spiritual that he missed the work of the Holy Spirit and the flesh and blood people that God placed alongside him to bring him the comfort that he needed and the rescue uh, that he was yearning for. So when we are exhausted, harassed, conflicted, fearful, when we are downcast, just to use the language of these verses, and we cry out to the God who comforts the downcast, how do we expect him to answer our prayer? Of course, there is the invisible sweet work of the Spirit assuring us of God's love and acceptance. Paul will speak about that elsewhere, but here he speaks about the way in which God comforts the downcast by raising up amongst our sisters and brothers those who will draw alongside us. Is this not the very point of the church? Are we not known and authenticated as real believers because we love one another, so Jesus says. That is how we demonstrate to a watching world that the love of God is real in the way in which we love each other. God comforted a downcast Paul with the coming of Titus. One evening this week, I was uh, delivering a belated Christmas gift from uh, one of my children to the home of her friend. Uh, This friend and her family are Christians. They worship in another church locally. It so happened that they'd received some really bad news that day. Uh, It so happened that my daughter's present for her friend uh, was adorned with a biblical word of hope and promise. And the family's conclusion, which they sent to us later and some other friends as well, was that God had comforted them in their distress through the comfort that came by their daughter's friend. Uh, It doesn't have to be uh, so mysterious and unpredictable. Uh, We don't need just to see these things in hindsight. This is the way in which God has designed the church to work and his comfort to be mediated as we share one another's lives. And draw along to carry one another's burdens. This is designed, of course, to be mutual. As Paul goes on to say uh, in the very next uh, verse here. uh, He told us, Titus told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern. So that my joy was greater uh, than ever. Uh, He told us, he said, about the comfort you had given him. 
Do you see the circularity of that? Uh, there is Paul, downcast. God, will you comfort me? Titus comes. And where is Titus's uh, strength to comfort Paul come from? But from the Corinthians, who have comforted and strengthened him. It's a virtuous and loving circle. And of course, the way in which uh, we need to put that in practice uh, is not uh, sit here and say, Lord, when will you send me Titus? But rather, Lord, to whom will you make me a Titus, that I may go and bring your comfort? If we pray like that, uh, then we have 200 Tituses around us uh, who will care for us. If we simply come saying, uh, who are you going to send me? Then, of course, well, then there's no comfort to be had at all. No, it's as we, uh, not as we uh, expect others to look after us, but as we commit ourselves to loving one another, then we find that mutual commitment of support and encouragement and love and burden-bearing that is the church, that is us loving one another. So I say I've dwelt on that uh, word because I want you to take that verse home out of all of this. Uh, Don't worry about the context uh, too much and how many letters Paul wrote, but remember this, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the sending of Titus. To whom will we be Titus today? Well, let's get back into the detail, uh, and then we'll pause again on the other major point uh, when we get there. Uh, Not all the news that Titus brings uh, to Paul is encouraging. Though the man who had defied the apostle had now been disciplined, uh, Paul's apostolic ministry was being criticized on a number of counts, and the church was facing renewed temptations and dangers uh, from a variety of threats. And Paul's next move is to write this letter a letter that we've been studying for some months uh, now. And the section we're in this morning uh, draws to a close the first half of the letter where he's painted a picture again again of what authentic Christian ministry is so that they will be able to recognize what's real and what is a fake. Next, he will address in the rest of the letter uh, some of the particular dangers that are facing this congregation. Now, as I say, I've gone into some detail, uh, so otherwise we might not understand the references to Titus or Macedonia or the one who did the wrong. But the other reason for dwelling here uh, because, is because the Corinthian church is a mess. And actually, almost every letter in the New Testament uh, comes into being because of problems within the congregations to whom uh, it is written And here is Paul under attack and full of anxiety. And yet here he is, the apostle, and yet so full of weakness and fear. Friends, the New Testament never romanticizes the early church or its ministers. Sometimes we're in danger, aren't we? Especially the older we get of thinking, well, if only it was like it was when I was young. If only it was like it was for those of us who love the Reformation. If only it was like it was in the 16th century with a burning love for the word of God. Well, they tended to burn at the stake, the preachers of those days. So maybe it wasn't entirely good. But the point is, when we're in a church that is not quite what it should be, and that sometimes frustrates us, and and we wish could be more authentic and more consistently Christian, and whatever it is, Well, don't despair. Just welcome to the world of New Testament Christianity. If this church were perfect, as one day it will be, that will be because Jesus has come back and taken us home and we have entered the new heavens and the new earth. There never was a golden age. There has only ever been an age 
where the, new tas- where the gospel makes us new creatures, where new resources, the spirit and the word of God, that we might love one another, but still in a world full of pain and discouragement and frustration. Don't listen to those who uh, tell you there's some other church that's got it all right. You'll only be disappointed within a few weeks or months. Get on with loving your neighbors here. This church is imperfect, and you're certainly led by someone who's far from perfect. Uh, If you don't know that after 20 years, you don't know much. But what, therefore, should we do? We should do what Paul does, and as he urges the Corinthians to do, uh, to renew our love for one another and not rest until it is all consuming. A painful past is no excuse, uh, neither are present disagreements or difficulties. Could we talk authentically of one another as Paul does in these verses? Make room for us in your hearts. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts. We would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. We take those those words not just onto our lips but into our hearts. This vulnerable passionate pastor that Paul is to the Corinthians. That's the model for us as well, and the more so for those of us in leadership. I remember in the weeks leading up to my ordination a long time ago, uh, praying over and over, Lord, teach me to love your people. I still need to pray it now. In fact, I'm more conscious of my need of it now than at any time ever. Will you pray it for us and for me? That we might be a church where when we are downcast, we are Titus to each other. Second, there is a beneficial pain. It's not as intuitive, it's not intuitive to see pain as beneficial, although there, are, there is one example that will make the point that it certainly can be leprosy. Uh, of course, was a, a disease that afflicted many in the ancient world and still does uh, today. And Jesus, uh, at the 8 o'clock service, we were looking at a passage where he healed uh, the leper, a wonderful and powerful act of mercy and restoration. Uh, but sufferers uh, of leprosy are disfigured only indirectly. The uh, disease itself attacks the nervous system, especially the nerves uh, of the hands, feet, and face. And the sufferers of leprosy feel no pain in those areas, and therefore they are likely to injure themselves. And that's what leads to uh, the injuries and the deformities. In other words, it's the absence of pain that leads to the disfigurement of the leper. At the moment when you belt your finger with a hammer, you may not thank the Lord for pain, but the alternative is worse. Because pain is, uh, in God's economy in a fallen world, uh, designed us to pay attention to that which is uh, in trouble, that it might find its remedy. And Paul is here making a similar point about the deep emotional or spiritual pain we feel when our sins are confronted. In God's purpose, that pain is entirely for our good I've already outlined the situation. Paul has written this severe letter. He knows it will hurt the Corinthians when they read it. Now look at verse 8 and 9. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. No, I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. 
We've just dwelt, haven't we, for some time on uh, Paul's love for the Corinthians. He doesn't want to hurt them, but he knows that they need need to hear the Lord's message of rebuke. It will bring them sorrow. And like a loving parent with a wayward child, Paul knows that he must uh, uh, strengthen himself uh, to endure the short-term pain he will cause them because it will be for their long-term benefit. And so it is for us. None of us likes to have a finger pointed at the sin in our lives, a light shone into some dark area. But uh, if in recoiling from the pain of it, we turn from the sin that would destroy us and turn back to the Lord who would save us, well, then that will turn out to be a godly sorrow, a God-intended sorrow. Uh, Verse 10 is the heart of this paragraph. And uh, again, this is the other verse uh, I'd love you to uh, commit to your memory and your prayers Uh, This week, if you are serious about your soul, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Here is the contrast. Uh, Just as not all physical pain is curative, uh, so not all spiritual sorrow for sin is restorative. And the reason for that is the difference between remorse and repentance. It is possible to be deeply conscious of your sins and full of grief for them and still not come to the Lord for forgiveness. And perhaps the best illustration of that is within the scriptures themselves. Consider Judas and Peter and their actions on the night before Jesus died. Judas is the example of worldly sorrow. He committed the ultimate act of treachery, betraying the Son of God for 30 miserable silver coins. But afterwards, he was filled with remorse. Matthew records his words to the priests. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Then he went away and hanged himself, Matthew says. He was filled with horror and sorrow for what he had done, but it did not lead to repentance towards God or any plea for mercy. It led only to suicidal despair. It would have been better for him, Jesus said, never to have been born. Hell received him. By contrast, Peter is a moving example of godly sorrow that we need. A sorrow that brings repentance and leads to salvation. Peter denied his Lord, and then he denied him again, and then he denied him again. And Luke records the bitter detail after Peter's third denial. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Imagine how Peter would have felt at that moment, his eyes locked with Jesus. The words still hanging in the air of his third denial. Imagine how he felt in his heart. Oh, Luke tells us, Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He was convicted of his sin, and it pained him to his soul. And yet, Peter, of course, was forgiven and restored and wonderfully used of God for the rest of his life. Not through his own efforts. It wasn't because his sins were, uh, were not serious or not even as serious as Judas's, but because as Peter himself was later to write of the Lord Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer 
of your souls. Can you see the contrast between Judas and Peter? Peter, when he was confronted by his own sin, turned to Christ, who in love took it from him, his sin from him at the cross. Having gone astray himself, he knew what it was to come back to his good shepherd, seeking a mercy that would meet him and heal him, a forgiveness that was perfectly matched to cover his unique sin. You'll remember the story. John tells it at the end of his gospel. Three times Peter denied the Lord. Afterwards, three times Peter asked those painful but restorative questions. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's answers reveal a sorrowful, repentant heart. And then he is restored and sent on his way to serve the Lord as he goes. Judas, on the other hand, recognized his sin. So what did he not do? Well, he he didn't cry out to Jesus for mercy. And he didn't look to the cross where even his sins could have been forgiven. He only looked within himself and he found only blackness. And there is no salvation there. Back to Paul's language. Godly sorrow for Peter brought not simply self-obsessed remorse, but Christ-directed repentance and led to salvation that left him with no regret. That same choice is before us. We're united by the fact that we are miserable sinners and we will be until the day we die. But what will distinguish the human race on the final day is that there will be those who have cried out to the Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. I trust that you took away my sin when you died on the cross. And those who simply look within and will never come and cry for that mercy. And if we ask, how do I know if I've truly repented and not just felt bad? Well, Paul gives us a hint here from verse 11. In in essence, repentance is uh, practical. It doesn't just mean feeling bad. uh, It means turning away. Recognizing that in the turning away, we will still trip and fall and need forgiving again. But turning away from those things, turning to Christ for his mercy doing it daily, moment by moment. That's why Paul says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. See, godly sorrow does something. It changes us on the outside. Whenever we meet, we confess our sins verbally, and that is right. But unless we repent of them practically, those words are meaningless. The mark of godly sorrow is this productiveness, this determination uh, to change. doesn't mean that we will never sin again, but it means there is a sincerity about it. It means there is a determination that with God's help we'll put in place new patterns, new pathways, and not simply make excuses. Paul writes, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness that is to put things right, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Uh, They were determined to make up for where they'd let Paul down. What indignation, not now against Paul for confronting them with their sin, but against the one who'd led them astray. What alarm as they come to see the eternal significance of failure to repent. What longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You see, there is a passion for holiness and a longing to live rightly, even while we recognize that we will still fall short again and again. At every point, he says, You've proved genuine. You've 
proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Not innocent of their uh, original complicity in this man's sin, but innocent in the Lord's sight because they've renewed their repentance. And like all of us, they stand by the grace and forgiveness of God alone. Well, then we come back to our first point. For the purpose of all this, says Paul in verse 12, was not ultimately on account of the one who did the wrong or the injured party, that is Paul himself, but that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By this we are encouraged. See, the love Paul has for them leads them to respond in repentance, and that repentance leads them to love him. And it is this virtual circle. If we do not uh, love our brother, well, then we do not love God. And if we love God, then we will repent of our sins And if we repent of our sins, then we will long to love our brothers and sisters. Godly sorrow and uh, deep love uh, lead to each other in the Christian life. Well, I wonder, as we come to the conclusion this morning, whether you know this godly sorrow. Uh, Perhaps you constantly have a hazy sense of guilt and inadequacy. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is linked to real guilt for real sins and issues in a heartfelt cry for forgiveness to the Lord that works itself out in real repentance. A sense of unworthiness, many of us wrestle with it. But the remedy is to listen to God's verdict that by his grace we are his daughters and sons and by the cross even we are declared righteous. Others perhaps have to struggle to see anything remotely wrong with themselves. Well, if that's you, then I pray that the Holy Spirit will come into your heart and show you the reality and that you will then flee in terror to the cross which alone can save you. Whatever our instinct and personality shapes us, ask God to give you this godly sorrow to show you your sins and to grant you true repentance. Remorse is not enough. That alone will bring death. Biblical repentance cries out to the Lord for mercy and seeks his help to live obediently. And that kind of repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Well, we'll leave uh, in detail the last few verses, but the same themes uh, continue. Uh, Titus is refreshed by the faithfulness of the Corinthians in this matter See, Paul has been refreshed by Titus and he's been refreshed by them. Again, we've painted this picture of the circle. These are not separate themes. The deep love of God's family in the church and the beneficial pain of conviction of sin that leads to repentance are all the work of the God of our salvation as he hangs his cross-shaped God-at-work sign over our lives individually and collectively. Love and pain only for the foolish? Yes, indeed. But the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Let's pray. Father, how we long for you to be at work amongst us. We love one another not just with words, but with actions. We are to one another uh, the agents of comfort in a world of pain and discouragement. We would not play at religion or simply saying words when we gather in a church building, but that you would do that work by your spirit of deep repentance in our hearts. Give us a love for holiness. 
Give us a clinging to the cross, knowing that our righteousness and our forgiveness come fully, but only there. Oh, Heavenly Father, please, would you make us, your people, as we uh, should be, growing in love, growing in humility, growing more like Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.